Sometimes in life, skepticism can serve you well. It can save you money, keep you from wasting a day at a timeshare presentation, and help you avoid spreading gossip. To be honest, when I am faced with a new scenario, I usually tend to be a skeptic until something proves me wrong. And if you're like me, you can probably spot a too-good-to-be-true health hack from a mile away and read labels like it's your job. That's where ritual comes in. They know that every good skeptic deserves a multivitamin that exceeds your standards. Their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin has high quality, traceable key ingredients in clean bioavailable forms. Take two delayed release capsules per day that optimize your body's absorption and you'll get nine key nutrients. Rituals Essential for Women is USP verified, so you know you can trust what you're putting in your body. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark, which shows the product contains the ingredients actually listed on the label. On top of that, Ritual multivitamins are vegan, non-GMO project verified, gluten and major allergen free, certified B Corp and made traceable. I take my vitamins every morning with breakfast. It's part of my daily ritual and I feel so good doing it. No more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash yoga girl. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash yoga girl for 25% off. Welcome, welcome, welcome to a brand new episode of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. I am so excited about today's episode. Today finally is the episode we have all been waiting for. Welcome to the period episode. I have been wanting to have an episode dedicated to our periods for a really, really, really long time. For different personal reasons, I've struggled with a lot of changes and shifts in my own cycle over the past year. I know a lot of you have as well. And in this episode, we actually find out that the pandemic period is a thing. Today on the show, I am joined by the lovely Nicole Jardim, also known as the period girl. She is a certified health coach and the author of the book, Fix Your Period. I actually didn't even know that period problems were so prevalent all across the world. And I received so many messages from so many of you asking questions about your periods, about your cycles, about menstruation for this episode. So today on the show, Nicole and I talk about everything from the phases of your cycle and why it's really important that you keep track of your own, the hormones that are actually at play in each phase and the effects that they have on our bodies, how to change the shame and the stigma around our periods in this patriarchal society. We also do a deep dive on the pill and the impact of hormonal birth control on the body. We also get into all things pandemic periods and why 2020 actually probably has impacted your period too. And on today's show, I share my very, very, very first period story, which might have you laughing so hard. Like if you're drinking something, you're going to have liquid coming out of your nose. Like this is a crazy story. I 
I almost pee my pants every time I tell this story because it's so ridiculous. I'm sure you have a fun, hopefully exciting and funny and humorous first period story and that it's not just sad, which I know it was for so many of us. We can actually rewrite the view that we have of our periods. Our periods hopefully shouldn't have to be this horrible, terrible, difficult, painful thing that happens every single month, but something that we can actually anticipate and align with so that we feel a little bit more knowledgeable about what's going on in our bodies and in tune with these amazing bodies that do so much for us every single day. So this is the period podcast. I am so excited. Let's dive in. Okay, so welcome to the show. I'm so excited to be talking to you. I've been wanting to do a period podcast forever and I'm so happy that you're here. How are you doing right now? I'm doing really well. Thank you. I'm so excited. I'm happy it's Friday. I'm psyched that we're closing out Friday with this. It's going to be so great. I loved all of your questions yesterday. I felt like people went crazy. So, you know, clearly there are a lot of people with period problems. Clearly. Yeah. I use social media to ask questions. They're still coming in. We have like a thousand plus comments. And then I have much more than that on Instagram stories. So a part of that, just reading and collecting the questions for this interview, I had a moment last night where I just started crying, just taking in the enormity of, of people's issues, the enormity of pain, the enormity of like, like there were, there were people who wrote me who were in their seventies who were like, I struggled my entire life. And I felt like menopause never ended. And you know, it was our period problems, a big thing. Yes, they are. You think? I know, right? I mean, where do we even begin? It's it's incredible to me because this was something I struggled with as a teenager, and that's how I actually got into this work. And at the time, I felt completely alone, and nobody really had these issues the way I did. And my mom had had terrible periods, so she just assumed this was all kind of normal. And so it went on for a number of years. And then as I got into my 20s and had more conversations and then into my 30s and started doing this work, you know, women just felt like, it felt like people were just coming out of the woodwork. (laughs) They were, you know, with all of these problems and saying, oh, I just felt so alone. And so they are so prevalent, but we don't talk about them because there's so much stigmatization around periods and menstruation and bleeding and all of it. There's so much stigma. There's so, so much shame. And I mean, it's 2020. And I, it just occurred to me yesterday that the other day I was at a cafe after yoga, having a cup of coffee with a friend and needed, she needed a tampon. And I was like, okay. And I did the thing that I did when I was 15. And you'd like sneak your hand into your purse and hide it in your hand. And I'm like, I still do that. You know, I want to be the person who's like, here's a tampon, everybody, like take the tampon, put it up your vagina, you know, but still it's very ingrained that there is something around this that is inherently shameful. How do we, how do we go about changing that? Oh my goodness. I really feel like this is conversation that needs to happen. And it's exactly what you just said. Here's the tampon, (laughs) put it up your vagina, you know, having these conversations and starting with your friends, starting with people that you trust and then branching out to, you know, other people, whether it's doing a moon circle or some kind of gathering of some, of some sort. And that's really where I think that the healing begins because 
if we're not speaking about this, there's and you know, there's silence around it. Shame is perpetuated. So when I think about these kinds of conversations, it really has to start with parents and their children. And we bring so much of our own period weirdness to our conversations with our children. And so I've you know had multiple conversations with friends over the couple last couple of years because everyone now in my world has toddlers or small kids, and you know they all tell me these funny stories about them getting their period or there's a menstrual cup or whatever and their little toddler or, you know their three four five year old is asking questions and i'm always like okay remember don't bring your preconceived notions or your uncomfortableness with this topic that you've learned over the last three decades to the conversation because they are completely neutral and so they immediately pick up on those cues and then unfortunately the stigma and the shame perpetuate themselves so it's it really comes back to our conversations with our kids and being completely matter of fact about it and then it goes from there that's a it's a super important place to place to start i i was thinking about i mean i've, I've been for this whole year i've been thinking about periods mainly because i've had a lot of shifts and changes in my own but i was telling my my husband the story the other day of just the, my first period like we never really had like that's a big thing your first ever period that's a big moment in a, in your life it's a big milestone you know it's a huge huge thing and I never like told my husband this big story of of how that came to be because it's I've had this idea that that's that's not something you share you know that's not relationship stuff it's like me stuff but why isn't it we talk about our first sexual experiences we talk about everything else but around the period part there is some sort of yeah, like some sort of blockage there. And we have a little girl who's eventually going to grow up and get her period. And I don't want him to be. So, okay, I have to tell you the story. So when I had my first period. I'm dying to hear your first period story, by the way. It's so, it's so ridiculous. So I, I can't remember anyone in my family ever talking to me about periods ever. It wasn't this negative thing. It was just no mention of it. It was like this. Yeah. And I'm Swedish. So in Sweden, we actually have this amazing government-funded youth clinic. It's in every city of the whole country. And everyone aged 13 to 25 can go for free at any time to get birth control, to pick up condoms, to pick up tampons, to ask questions. There's a therapy component to it as well if you've had hard experiences. You can book abortions. Like Sweden was the first country to legalize abortions in Europe. It's like a very, very liberal, open space. So my first interactions about periods happened there, like with a friend. And then that's how they explained it to me. And then I remember I had my period and it was my first time ever. And I was supposed to go on a trip with my dad and my little brother. We were going to go on vacation somewhere and we were going to be away for two weeks. And I'd already had like two or three days of this period with like the pads and the things that they got me at this clinic. And we were going to be gone for two weeks. And I remembered in my like 14 year old mind, like, okay, wait, 14 days. Okay. I've used this many pads in a day and we're going to be there for 14 days. So that means I'm going to need like 75 or 80, maybe a hundred pads <laughs> because I didn't know my period was going to end. <laughs> So we get to oh we get gosh. to Paris and my dad, you know, we never had a conversation about anything, you know, anything, you know, around my body ever. And I told him I'm going to be this cool girl and just not feel ashamed. So I said, Dad, we need to buy pads because we're going to be away for two weeks. And he said, oh, OK, how many do you need? And I and I, and I went probably 100. <laughs> so I had two bags of 
of pads of like always maxi pads and I remember my dad going honey are you sure you need this many boxes and I was like yeah no bring bring it on you know we're gonna be away for so long who knows if I can find it there. okay like you're killing me right now <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a so, classic mistake. Classic. Oh my God. It's so funny. And of course my dad must have known, like, there's no way we're going to need this many, but he was just humoring me like, okay, you know, buy a hundred, hundred boxes of pads. And I was just laughing so hard around this. There should be a podcast just about first periods. That's like a, I seriously, the stories I have heard, you would die. And so it's really interesting because what you're talking about with this first period story is that we carry this with us for years. I mean, I've had conversations with women in their 40s and 50s telling me about their first period experience, and it was so traumatic for them that it completely, I think, personally changed the trajectory of their their life in terms of how, how much they hated their periods and how uncomfortable they were and how many symptoms they had associated with them. So I really am all about us, if we've had a negative experience, rewriting that period story, really learning to love our periods if it's it's possible i swear and you know and really embrace them because this is something that you've got with you for life and it's your period is not just your period right it's reflective of everything that's going on in your body which we'll talk about but i think that that's a really important thing for all of us to think about as we're moving through these decades in our lives remembering that first experience yours is hilarious <laughs> some yeah and i can really, really laugh terrible. about it no, for yeah. some people, it can be really, really traumatic. And I mean, I know we all know period poverty is very real. And across the world, there's people who don't have access to any kind of sanitary support. I mean, this can be a really, really, it's actually a deterrence to, to girls going to school. I mean, it's a big, big, big global issue too. But I would love to know a little bit more about your background. You know, how did you get into this, yeah, this line of, this line of work? What was your period aha moment? It's just, I know, I think about this a lot. I'm like, wow, this is definitely not part of the plan. <laughs> but here I am. You know, for me, I really, like I said before, was really struggling with period problems as a teenager. I remember having super heavy, really painful periods that would, you know, come more consistently than I thought were was normal. And I, you know, it would disrupt life, school, getting schoolwork done, going to school, everything. I mean, there were moments where I would leak through my school uniform. And, you know, when things like that happen as a teenager, you're basically like, okay, I can die now. <laughs> I can't go on. So there was just so much embarrassment, so much shame around it. I remember going to friends' houses to sleep over and their mom having to put a towel down on the bed for me so that, you know, if I leaked, it wouldn't ruin their mattress or whatever. I mean, mortifying beyond belief. And yet I, you know, I, it just continued because I just, my mom was like, well, you know, I, I really had so much worse period. So I, I think this is just kind of par for the course. And finally, what started to happen was my period would come every three or four months. So suddenly I'm getting a period two or three times a year. And my, my mom says, okay, well, that never happened to me. So let's go to the doctor and see what's going on. And so I finally went and I explained this whole thing in detail. You know, I'm a Virgo, a type personality. I had to tell her everything. And she just, she kind of dismissed it and wrote a prescription for the pill. And I thought, all right, I can roll with this because everyone else was on the pill and I wasn't. And I had heard great stories about how you just have these normal, regular cycles that don't disrupt your life. And that's exactly what happened. So for the first few years, 
I felt like I had found my silver bullet. My period was regular again. It wasn't heavy. It wasn't painful. I didn't have these crazy mood swings. So I was like, give me the pill for the rest of my life. And then I started to have all of these side effects. And I remember my hair starting to fall out and just feeling sick all the time. Like I was always, I always had a cold, my stomach problems. I'd had some stomach issues as a teenager and they just got exponentially worse to the point where I, you know, was going to the doctor to find out whether I had Crohn's disease or, you know, whether, you know, I was doing colonoscopies and things like that. And then I remember too, that I started to develop melasma all over my face and I was getting chronic UTIs, yeast infections, all this craziness. And so finally, I gave up on conventional medicine because my OBGYN was just a revolving door. I was in and out getting prescriptions. I went to all these different doctors for what felt like seemingly unrelated problems. Everything was different. And I was going to all these different specialists and nobody had an answer and not a single- So you didn't know it was relating to the, to, pill. To the pill or to no. the- okay. And not a single person ever said, oh, this could be what's, what's happening as a result of the pill. So I finally saw an acupuncturist and he was the first person to say to me that this was likely what was happening. He said, well, you're not ovulating anymore. I'm like, what the hell is ovulation? And what does that have to do with anything? And that really was the catalyst for me for completely overhauling my life and eventually getting into this work because I just thought, oh, if I could help one woman not suffer the way I had suffered, then my work here is done. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, you know how it is. And the rest is history for the most part. Mothers deserve the absolute best. So this Mother's Day, spoil the moms in your life with little luxuries from Osea. Osea's skin and body care is the perfect way to remind all the moms, mother figures, caregivers, grandmothers, and mother-in-laws in your life to make time for themselves. If you have been looking for the perfect gift, I recommend Osea's Andaria Algae Body Oil. I've been using it for years and it seems like every single time I apply it, I get compliments on my skin. This body oil is rich, but it's never greasy and it's clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity. Your skin will feel more sculpted and toned and you'll be left feeling silky, soft and glowing. Another favorite of mine is the Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. Ever since I've been using collagen, I have noticed a difference in my skin. In fact, it's never been better. Using Osea's body oil and lotion together is a mega moisture duo, giving you a full body glow. Osea's products are infused with their signature Andaria seaweed, but it's also clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. Really just a perfect gift for yourself, the moms in your life, and even the planet. Spoil the moms in your life with clean, vegan skin and body care from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with the code YOGA at OseaMalibu.com. You'll get free samples with every order and free shipping on orders over $60. Head to OseaMalibu.com and use the code YOGA for 10% off. It's interesting because your story, it's, it's, a, it's a really intense big thing to be dismissed for that long. And it's so common. I have so many friends who had major, major, major issues. I've had, I have a lot of friends who were diagnosed finally with endometriosis, but had years of their lives. You know, one of my best friends growing up, every time she had her period, every single month, she couldn't go to school for a whole week. And I'm right. like, you're missing 25% of life pretty much because of these unbearable pains. And okay. for like 15, 20 years, doctors told her that this is, this is just what periods are. It's normal. And she's screaming in agony at home. You know, how is this normal? So do you think does, does, you know, the fact that we live in a patriarchy, the fact that 
conventional medicine is very male dominated and that science is also very skewed toward toward the male side of things has that contributed to to women suffering more than they actually should I fundamentally believe that. And when I think about what you just said about your friend screaming in pain, missing 25% of her life, how many of those, that version of those, that story I've heard so many times. And what I always say is that when we have pain in our bodies, no matter where it is, usually we go to the doctor and the doctor starts to figure out what is causing that pain. And then we'll generally offer a solution. Usually they're not the most amazing solutions, but you know, usually we're trying to investigate and figure out what's wrong. And with uterine pain, that just does not happen. It's completely dismissed as normal pain. And I don't know where along the way that happened, but it's so problematic because we hear this story over and over again of being dismissed, sent on your way, told you're crazy, told that this is all in your head, or you're just imagining this, or that you're exaggerating it. And you know, women are in the ER because of pain from endometriosis or issues with adenomyosis, and they're and they're sent home with a literally really powerful narcotic painkiller. And then there's you know there are addiction issues that come from that. And so this is a constant, I think, cycle of being dismissed and just being overlooked. And it 100% comes back to the fact that, yes, women were not required to be included in studies for many, many years up until like the mid 90s. And it really wasn't until the mid 2000s that they had to show the differences in the results in studies between women and men and how they responded. And so I think that this continues on because the problem here is that doctors don't really have an answer. They don't have a sustainable long-term solution to these chronic health problems, which is what they are. They absolutely cannot be fixed by the pill. And I get so much flack for this. People get really upset with me when I say this, but the pill does not regulate your period. It does not fix your period pain. It does not address any of the underlying causes of all of these period problems. Because like I said, your period is a barometer of your overall health. So it's going to be reflective of something going on on a deeper level. You fix the symptoms and it's basically akin to turning off the fire alarm and letting the fire blaze. And that's essentially what I feel is happening with conventional medicine. And I don't think it's you know the doctor's fault necessarily because I understand this is the training and these are the solutions that are presented, but we've got to start digging deeper. We just have to. So let's let's talk about that because that was a hugely asked question from people who had period related issues and immediately had their OBGYN or, or, or doctors say, okay, we'll go on the pill, it will fix everything. Yeah. And then maybe like you, years down the road, have all kinds of health issues or maybe have spent 20, 30 years on the pill and suddenly realizing, you know, I, I don't know if I want to to be on the pill anymore or questioning is this, what is it actually doing to my health? So wh- why is the pill the number one first, you know, recommended thing and how can it negatively affect the body long-term? Oh, oh my gosh. You got all day. <laughs> I feel like there's so many side effects with the pill, but I think the first thing to understand with the pill is that it has become this solution, this sort of be all end all for every female related illness. And so when we think back to the history of the pill, so I'll just briefly break this down so that everyone understands why it's now the go-to is that 
you know, back, it came out in the late 60s. It was actually used to address period problems back then. And then women realized that it was also, it also worked as birth control because they weren't getting pregnant. And then it became approved for birth control itself. So again, another patriarchal side of it because, you know, it's just like women can't use this for birth control. So anyways, it became approved for birth control. And then there was a lot of research around it in the 60s, 70s. And then it stalled out in the 80s because there was so much liability. It's a lot of expense involved in researching birth control. It's just a, it's a lot for these companies. So the pharmaceutical companies decided that they wanted to focus more on the lifestyle component. So the acne and the period regulation and all of these other you know, issues that are quote unquote lifestyle problems. And so that's what they did. And so they stopped really researching and developing new forms of birth control. And that was when the pill took off for all of these other issues. So there's been a decades long you know, sort of attempt to make the pill more user-friendly for all of these issues versus just birth control. So it's not like this just came out of nowhere. And so really, you know, and not only that, these pills were all rebranded as different names. So to address PMS or PMDD symptoms or to address acne, like I said, or other issues like irregular cycles and whatnot. And so that's kind of how it's happened. So it's the same formula, same thing that we've been using for 40 years, 50 years, repackaged and rebranded. And so what happens now is that doctors are trained to use the birth control pill as a solution to all of these issues. But what is happening is that the pill is turning off ovulation. And what we don't, we've never been taught, again, this is where that education piece comes in. We've never been taught that the pill is not actually fixing the problems and that ovulation is a vital body process. And if we turn off ovulation, sometimes like you said, for decades on end, which is how many people are using the pill now for the length of time that they're using it for, we end up in a situation where we've turned off this vital body process that is not just responsible for fertility. I mean, the hormones that are made as a part of the ovulatory process, like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and a few others are responsible for our bone health, our heart health, our skin, our hair, our digestive function, immune system function. They're also responsible for our nervous system and mood. So these are why the pill side effects are so far reaching. And this is why women feel like they're kind of going crazy on the pill because it's impacting these just these specific hormones, but it's causing such far-reaching effects because those hormones have such a, an impact on every part of our bodies. And it makes a lot of sense, you know, it, it, and I understand that you get a lot of flack for it also because for many people, it's been super helpful, you know, and I'm sure many people can say, yes, this actually helped fix this major issue in my life. So it doesn't negate that for some people this really works, but it makes so much sense that turning off this major bodily function that we all experience and then never turning it back on or never discussing what happens by keeping that part of your body or your system shut down for so, for so many years. So for someone who's listening right now, who, who maybe has been wanting to get off the pill or wanting to find a a solution. What is a safe and smart way to go about that? Right. 
Well, I feel like, you know, that's constituted as medical advice when we're talking about an, an actual medicine. Right. So I always tell everyone, you know, go and speak to your doctor, explain the symptoms that you're having, but just know that your doctor is going to be more focused on keeping you on some form of hormonal birth control because that's the goal, right? It's the, the goal is to, if you're trying to not get pregnant, for instance, then that's what they're going to do, or they're going to try switching you to another form of birth control. And it's really up to us, I think, to do our research research to understand how all of this works. It's, it's some crazy number. I don't know the percentage exactly. I've read it and I forget it, so I don't want to misquote it, but it's a very high number of people on the pill who don't know how the pill works. And so that's the thing that's really confronting for people is that they're being told this story about the pill is doing X, Y, Z for them. And then I'm on there like, actually, it doesn't. And well, it's, it's really a different upsetting. thing having it, right. you know, someone telling you this will help you regulate your hormones and then your acne will disappear and you won't have pain and all this stuff is going to versus this is going to shut down your ovulation like that. Just right. hearing that is is a different take on, you know, exactly. But that's the mechanism by which the pill works. And so I think more than anything, we need explanations. So informed consent, how are you getting on the pill in the first place or any other form of hormonal birth control? What are you being told about how it works and the possible side effects and the alternatives that are available to you? And so I think that that is really, it's fundamental. We have to educate ourselves about how our bodies work and how the pill works or any other form of hormonal birth control in our body. And when we understand that, we can make informed, empowered decisions. So when you're, when you're talking about coming off the pill and you wanna get off the pill for whatever reason, speaking with your doctor is your first step. Your doctor may not be on board with that. You are always welcome to find another doctor. I'm always like, you know, we never put up with bad haircuts. <laughs> we will always go back to that hairdresser or go to someone else and fix that. And yet we put up with this really terrible service from our doctors being dismissed, being told that we're crazy, all this stuff. And I'm like, you're paying that person. You have every right to find a doctor who will partner with you and be on board with your decisions. Because at the end of the day, your health is your responsibility. We cannot outsource our health care. We cannot make someone else care about our health more than we should and do. So ultimately, it's up to us to get educated about how it all works and then make a decision from there. So true. And a a big part of that is also the being conscious about what happens in the body. And I I know so many people who are so mindful around diet and, you know, wants clean eating. I don't want to have any additives. I don't want this, but then has been on the pill for so many years. And it's, it's a big thing, but it's become part of just daily habits. So I, I, I was thinking back to, to, you know, coming from Sweden, being very privileged in Sweden, because I know in, in the U.S. reproductive rights and getting support in terms of the, these areas is a huge, 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 unsure why it's controversial, because it's, it's just health, but it is. But when I was young, so I was, I was 15 when I had my first serious boyfriend, also in Sweden, and this is like always surprising to, to Americans, like sex is fairly open and, and, and I think a little more free having sex when you're 14, 15, having a boyfriend, like it's sleep over. Like that was always allowed or among me and my friends. People are always like, what? You were on <laughs> birth control when you were 15? Yep, I was. And so was everyone, everyone I knew. So I had my first serious boyfriend at 15. We were together for four years and wanted birth control. And I remember my mom saying, yeah, just go to the youth clinic and then they'll help you, you know. And I went there and they gave me the pill and I vomited for a week straight. I mean, I was 15. It's like, it's so young. I vomited for a week straight 
and felt so bad. I mean, it was this, this, this guttural reaction. So I went right back and said, this is not going to work. And then they gave me something, which in Sweden, they call the mini pill. I don't know if there's a version yes. of that in the U S yeah, it's, it's called the mini pill. What's only. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's a, a progestin only pill, meaning that it has the synthetic version of progesterone in it. So it, it I don't know that that's necessarily the next step, but Hey, that's what they gave you. That's what they gave me. And yeah. I remember like, you know, being 15, I, I don't think I listened. I mean, maybe they educated me really well. I, I just remember, okay, I'll try this one. And I took that felt so terrible. And then they gave me something like a ring that you're supposed to insert in your, like some hormonal ring. Yeah. And I remember ring. feeling like I was like, my vagina was on fire. Like, oh. I, like it was like, like, <laughs> like, so I tried, every, you know, and then I had friends who had this implant implanted yes. in their arm, which was mm-hmm. also, I think about that now, like, how crazy is that? All the while, no man has ever had to go through <laughs> anything along these lines. It's so bizarre. And then finally, I, I had that ring and I had nine months, which I can recognize now, but didn't at the time of absolute gut-wrenching depression where nine months out of that year, I couldn't, like I would go to school and then go home and lie in bed and cry. Oh and, God. and because no one was really, you know, and I was so young, no one was really checking in with me. Like, how is this contraceptive working out? Like, how is this hormonal thing that's, that was making your vagina go on fire that's now in there you know how do you feel like there was no really like follow-up there and also not really communication in my family either so finally after recognizing nine months in like maybe this is why I'm crying because it's like I understood that it started at that point I went back and then they said okay well hey let's put you on an IUD like a, a copper one Wow, girl. So this you was my, <laughs> oh my God. And I was so, so, so young, you know, so it's like my, yes. I wasn't f- like finished developing. And also I wasn't really aware of what is this stuff doing with my body? The IUD, the copper one was the thing that, that just worked. And I stayed, I, I, I think I had three rounds of it. I had like 12 years of, <laughs> of being oh on my. an IUD at oh some my point God. before oh my deciding, God. you know, I met my husband and then we decided maybe it would be fun to, to have a kid at some point. And then took it out. And then a year later, we got we got pregnant. But I am really contemplating, okay, so in terms of trying all of these different things at such a young age where I'm still developing, the internal mechanisms of my body haven't settled, um, going from contraceptive to contraceptive, and then eventually getting this copper IUD in. And every five years, I would have it replaced. But basically, like 15 years of my life on something. What does that do to the body in a sense of not just period related and, and reproductive related, but looking at the body as a whole. Right. So for, you mean being on a, on a form of hormonal birth control that's stopping ovulation for a potential decades and what right. does that do, what the impact right. is? I think it, it's different for everyone. So I will say that. And, you know, so I can't say blank, uh, you know, blanket, it's the same for everyone, but I will say that when we're, first of all, as a teenager, when you're taking these forms of hormonal birth control and you're essentially shutting down the ovulatory process at this really young age when your endocrine system and your reproductive function is it's still trying to figure itself out, right? I mean, when you think about the fact that at you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, whenever you get your period, you're going from this anovulatory state to ovulatory cycles. So you're basically, it's like a baby learning to walk. That's what's happening with your endocrine system. 
And you're, it's really, puberty doesn't end until your late teens and then you're not really fully developed until your 20s. So when you think about the fact that we just like chop that, we stop that, we just stop that process in its tracks, what is that, what is that doing? You know, there are potential long-term consequences. Interestingly, there are studies that talk about bone health and the fact that when teenagers are taking hormonal birth control, it definitely stunts bone development and bone growth from that, from that young age. And so what's happening now is that someone in their 20s or 30s is potentially developing osteopenia or osteoporosis, which is the advanced stage. So osteopenia is the first part, osteoporosis is next. So these are conditions that were always associated with menopause. This was not something that someone in their 20s or 30s was developing, but now there's really evidence to show that use of hormonal birth control particularly the pill, is causing this. And so we need to really be thinking about how do we how do we get teenagers on some form of birth control or using some sort of birth control method that does not stop ovulation because it really does have far-reaching effects. In addition to all of that, we've got things like, you know, the pill definitely triggers an inflammatory response in the body. There are certainly nutrient deficiencies that are associated with the pill. So things like the micronutrients, magnesium, zinc, selenium, uh, B vitamins, uh, vitamin D, oh, sorry, vitamin E and C. So there's multiple issues happening here where we've got gut health related issues, inflammation response, we've got nutrient deficiencies, and then we also have the mood disorders that come from it as well. I mean, teenagers have a significant significantly increased risk of mood disorders versus someone saying, say, was in their 20s or 30s taking the pill. So there are these, these ongoing issues that then become long-term problems. And like you said before, men have never had to go through this. They've done multiple trials on male hormonal birth control or male birth control pills, and they've stopped them every time mood disorders have happened or other issues have shown up. I'm like, oh, if you guys- So same stuff that we have to deal with. They have like one, one, one thing of that. and like, oh no, this is bad. This is not gonna yeah, work. We're done. We're stopping this trial completely. And we would <laughs> never, right? We would never ever dream of literally stopping the way males testes function and they suddenly, you know, don't make their testosterone the way that they needed to, we would never dream of doing something like that to them. So essentially we're doing that to women and female bodied people. And we're just, we're, it's terrible because we're at the point where there are so many side effects from these methods of birth control that are so detrimental. And, you know, I think about someone like someone who has PCOS, for instance, that is the number one treatment is to put someone on the pill. What is PCOS? That was a big question that, yes. that, that we had. Oh, I did see that. So it's polycystic ovary syndrome. And it's a, it's a, it's a complicated inflammatory endocrine disorder. However, it's not that complicated in the sense that there are you know, very specific reasons it happens. It definitely has genetic underpinnings. So not everyone can develop PCOS. You certainly have to have a genetic component to it or there is a genetic component to it. But the point is, is that with PCOS, it's a condition of lifelong androgen excess. And androgen, in, you know, another way to say androgen is like the male sex hormones or testosterone, DHEA, and and so with PCOS, what's happening is 
you tend to have elevated levels of these hormones and they disrupt ovulation. So someone with PCOS will have very irregular cycles. They might have weight gain and they can't figure out why. They may have acne, male pattern baldness. They may have hair growth in other parts of their bodies that you know they didn't have before. So, And this shows up oftentimes in the teenage years because our androgens tend to be higher during puberty and then they level off as we get older. So we may not have PCOS, but our period might be really irregular and we may have some hair growth or something like that. I remember all of those symptoms as a teenager. And then you're automatically diagnosed with that and put on the pill. Meanwhile, you didn't need to be, it was just your hormones trying to work themselves out. So coming back to this, you know, being diagnosed with something, that's the other thing as well. Like this is a PCOS is a bit of a trash can diagnosis, I feel like, because ultimately we need to know for sure that it is actually PCOS and you really have to be measuring the androgens and, you know, keeping track of cycles and all of those things. So I don't even know where I was going with that. So maybe, so maybe, (laughs) maybe a second diagnosis, if you've had that diagnosis and been put on the pill as the only, only option. So what, what are some helpful things then? I mean, looking more towards solution. So PCOS, definitely, I would love to offer some, some suggestions for people because that was a really big question, but also in terms of, of, of making our periods more balanced and minimizing the symptoms that we have overall, what are some, some helpful things that we can actually do? Yes. Okay. So there's a lot of things people can do. And I think one of the first things to remember is that our bodies are not as complicated as we've been led to believe. I feel like a lot of the times women will say something like, oh my gosh, my my body is just so messed up and I'm so confused by it and I don't understand it. I just give up. And I'm like, no, wait, hold on. It actually isn't. And I always, I talk about this in my book, actually, I talk about this hormonal hierarchy. And so I always try to educate everyone about this, about the fact that there are a few key hormones hormones that can get messed up pretty easily. And they have this sort of cascade downstream effect on our other hormones, particularly our sex hormones. So progesterone, estrogen, testosterone, as well as our thyroid hormones, because that also plays a big role in our periods and how they function. And so what I, what I try to communicate to everyone is that those, those big time hormones, the, the key hormones I'm talking about, they are cortisol and insulin. Cortisol is our well-known stress hormone. Insulin is the blood sugar hormone. And so what happens when we are constantly exposed to this barrage of stressful events in our lives, or we're constantly exposed to this barrage of carbohydrate-heavy foods, what ends up happening is we have dysregulated cortisol, dysregulated blood sugar, and insulin, and those impact everything. So for someone with PCOS, for instance, and really this goes across the board for everyone when it comes to blood sugar control, if you get your blood sugar under control, or if it's out of control, what happens is insulin becomes out of control, like I said. And high elevated blood sugar, elevated insulin has this sort of inflammatory cascade effect. And so when our body is chronically inflamed from these foods or you know, from these high levels of, of blood sugar and insulin, we end up in a situation where our bodies just can't do what they're supposed to do. So in the end, they're just constantly putting out fires. We can't ovulate consistently. We just can't feel vibrant and healthy because we're just constantly trying to calm the inflammation. And so when we think about insulin as well, it actually triggers 
ovarian, the ovaries to make more testosterone or make more of those androgens. And when we make more of the androgens, it actually shuts down the entire reproductive function between the ovaries and the brain and then the brain and the ovaries. So that whole feedback loop is disrupted. So then we don't ovulate, we don't have a period. So that's why PCOS people don't have consistent period. So that's one of the biggest issues I feel like happens with teenagers as well as, as anyone who is struggling with period related problems is their blood sugar and insulin are totally out of whack. And then with the cortisol side of things, we also have a situation where this stuff is perpetually normalized in our society, right? Like you're, you're super stressed, you're super busy, you're doing a thousand things at once. Oh, you, you are the woman who has it all. We, yeah, and does it all. We are constantly rewarding that kind of behavior. Again, insert the patriarchy and the fact that this is just the way we've been taught to live and it's rewarded. Whereas a female cycle or a feminine cycle is one that flows with our menstrual cycle phases. We're, we're living with the ebbs and flows of our hormones on a weekly basis if we have a relatively regular cycle. And so what happens is this cortisol is out of control and it is amazing because cortisol has a direct impact on our brain sending signals to our ovaries and it impacts our ovaries as well. So it will do what it can to shut down ovulation or delay it because our body feels like it's a dangerous time. This is not a safe time to be getting pregnant and having a baby because unfortunately our bodies are still living 20,000 years ago when it experienced danger and it knew what to do. Now that danger has been replaced with you know, traffic jams and mean bosses and things like that. But ultimately that's really what's happening. So if we can start to work on the top-down approach where we're working on our cortisol levels and we're working on our blood sugar, everything else can start to normalize. In fact, I feel like these are the foundational components for us. And in fact, we don't really need to spot treat the period related symptoms so much. We actually just need to work on addressing those bigger queen bee hormones, as I call them, because that's really what is going to have the most profound effect. So that's really the gist of it. I can go into more. <laughs> no, this is to me, it's so fascinating. And I was really contemplating the amount of people who were sharing just now that they feel like they've had a major negative shift in their cycle somehow happening this year. And I was really thinking about, well, the collective trauma of, of this pandemic and of, of, of everything related to, to the wildness that has been this year and the past couple of years. Are we experiencing collective changes in our cycles? Are we expect experiencing, is there such a thing as, as a collective shift in our, in our cycles right now? There is. I've actually been calling them pandemic periods because it's totally a thing. It's absolutely pandemic great. periods. So what are the changes that, that you've seen? Because I've had, so the, the reason that this has been such a current topic for me is my whole life I've had really easy periods, which I now know I've, I've heard maybe isn't necessarily a good thing. Like my periods are, are super, super short. Like they can arrive two days, they're gone. Sometimes I barely notice them, really light, never pain, never moody, nothing. To all of a sudden, like 10 days before my period begins, I get so depressed that this to me is so funny that it actually propelled my husband to download a period tracking app on his own without telling me secretly tracking my period without letting me know so that he could tell me that, Hey, you're at the same point in your cycle. Now, the reason you're crying all day is not because your life is terrible, but it's, it's your body, right? Your, your period is coming up. And then he would count down. He says, remember it's only nine days, eight days. 
Like that's how intense these mood swings and this sort of depression feeling has been. And I never used to have that. So yeah. you think that is related to, to pandemic period or, or, or something else? It could be a combination of things. And I'm so glad you've brought this up because I've had many men reach out to me over the years because they're just desperate. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I really, you know, it's funny, Hayden, my partner and I, we've contemplated creating a course for, for men. For men. I love that. I would send right? my husband in a heartbeat. And I think he would love to... Like when I found this out, he was like, hey, just so you know, you know, your period is seven days away. And I was like, what? How? <laughs> and, and the first thing I said was, no, no, it's not. No, it's miles away. Like I just had my period because I, I wasn't present with it. I haven't yes. been. We, I used to track. I used to use uh, natural cycles. We used to be really good with that. And then I was much more present. But this year I just and then somehow the fact that he is more present with my cycle than I am. Like there's something off with that. That's but love, also honey. that that's love. <laughs> yeah. That he felt like he, he because he said it, it, it's calming to me that it's not that there's something wrong in our relationship or all of a sudden everything I do is wrong or the feeling like I can't help you no matter what I do you feel this way and it's it's been helpful for him too I think a, I think a course for men would be or for partners for spouses would be wonderful wouldn't it though I completely agree I'm working on it so okay so there's a few things pandemic periods for sure a real thing when I think about the like you said the collective stress the collective fear the unknown everything has changed for pretty much everyone around the world I mean there's not a single person really who's untouched by this pandemic, unless you're, I don't know, living on a deserted island and you don't even see people or know what's going on in the world. And there are people like that, bless them. <laughs> so I really believe that this sort of collective stress and fear has done a huge number on periods. Because like I was saying, when you're this stressed out or when cortisol is just sort of coursing through your veins or there are other dysregulated stress hormones, you're in a situation where your, you know, your brain is just constantly, your hypothalamus actually is constantly taking in those signals. And one, once it's got those signals, it's like, okay, we're going to prioritize stress hormone production. We're going to basically not prioritize our reproductive function and our thyroid function and our gut function, because none of those are required for us to survive. So when people are talking about their period issues coming up, what they're experiencing are things like really heavy periods or really delayed periods. So they don't ovulate or they haven't ovulated consistently. So they're not getting their period on time anymore. They're noticing major mood swings. So exactly what you're describing. I'm hearing this more and more that, you know, people are like, I never had a period problem my whole life. And suddenly like you seven days before my period, I'm completely freaking out. You can't even scrape me up off the floor. What is wrong with me? And I really think that it's, it's very much that it's just sort of this low grade stress that's happening in the background for all of us. And I, I think that our bodies are exquisitely sensitive to these stressors. And that's not, that's not, does not mean your body is broken. There's not something wrong with you. You're not defective. It's an evolutionary trait that we evolved to be protected. We were, our bodies are always looking out for us. And so when we think that there's something really wrong, all it is, is your body speaking to you in its own language, signaling to you that this is not okay. The situation that we're in is not good. And so here is my protection mechanism for you to make sure that you can survive this extremely stressful potentially dangerous situation. 
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. We talk about that in, in trauma work so much of the yeah. responses of the body that we feel are terrible or, you know, putting us back in these challenging patterns in our lives. And how do I heal this? Actually, at some point was this genius thing that our bodies did for us to keep us safe and to keep us, you know, being able to manage that time. So I definitely resonate with this being more, you know, and because this is ongoing, it's not, we had a one month pandemic or a, you know, train wreck kind of pandemic that came and went, but it's ongoing. It's not ending that it's this constant in the background um, type of thing. So, so what, what do we do? Is it, do we, we all do more Mm -hmm. yoga or (laughs) like, (laughs) just finding finding ways to to lower our stress levels to to bring more calm and more peace into our to our system every single day yes i feel like there are multiple things and you know i think the first thing is yes we have to figure out a way to to calm our stress response whatever that looks like for us and it's certainly not easy right now for so many people but i really believe that you know, recognizing your stress threshold and what that is, and I want everyone to do this, is that you are paying attention to that threshold that you reach. And then when you cross over it, everything goes haywire. So you suddenly develop, you know, you go from having a little headache or a few headaches to a full-blown migraine that knocks you out for days, or you end up with a sinus infection, or you have an incredibly horrible, heavy, painful period one month and that doesn't normally happen to you. You know, there's multiple things. For me, it's like neck and back pain and I can feel it and then I just go completely off the rails and I have to go to someone to help put me back together. So I really want everyone to be cognizant of when they reach that threshold and what triggers them to go over that. Because once you go past that point, your body is now, it's not only the external stressors, it's the internal stress, the pain, the pain that's sending signals to other parts of your body that you know are basically causing this internal stress that just exacerbates the external environment stress. So that's really what it comes down to. Like, how do we channel that internal sort of gauge to determine when it is that we've gone too far and, you know, and bring ourselves back to balance. And I understand that that can be really challenging, but I feel like this is like inserting pockets in your day at this point, right? Because so many of us are just so overwhelmed. I also think too, taking responsibility for what it is that you're taking in. So are you watching the news? Are you doing all of this stuff that's perpetuating this problem? So I really think about, you know, taking social media fasts and going off of all the news channels and not, you know, getting rid of your cable <laughs> if you can. You know, there's multiple things that one needs to do in order to take care of their mental and emotional health. I also think too, like getting your 
your blood sugar under control is so crucial and we don't even know it. We think about it as it relates to diabetes, but ultimately with blood sugar, like I said, it has such a profound effect on ovulation and your sex hormones that if you don't get it under control, it can be really problematic over time. And so thinking about starting with breakfast, that's the easiest thing one can do and really focusing on complex carbohydrates, lots of leafy greens or cruciferous vegetables that are going to support your liver's detoxification of those, those used up hormones that are problematic if they are reused by your body, as well as some kind of protein and fat that is going to set you up for a whole day of blood sugar balance. And then sleep. I think about sleep a lot because it's one of these very undervalued, <laughs> very precious things in our society. But when I think about sleep and I think about the fact that if you don't get enough sleep, you're a little bit more insulin resistant the next day. And it becomes even worse every single day that you lose more and more sleep. So that's something that's so crucial for us, especially in our 30s and 40s, where, you know, when you're when you're in your 20s, I feel like everything's fine. <laughs> you know, you may have some period problems or you may have a more severe condition, but generally speaking, most people have periods that are not a really huge deal in their 20s. And we're so resilient then that we can bounce back pretty much from anything. I remember the days when I didn't get hangovers. It's amazing. Uh, that was lovely. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't it amazing? <laughs> I mean, I feel like, wow, what was that like? That seems like a long ago memory that is, yeah, fading fast. But the point is, is that your liver function is better, your gut health is better, your mental and emotional state, you're far, just far more resilient to the external and internal stressors. And as you get into your 30s and 40s, you're going to find that you're not as resilient. And it really requires some, some concerted effort to take care of yourself in a way that is going to allow you to live the life that you want to live and live your purpose. And so I think about the fact that, you know, in our 30s, the biggest complaint is, my period has just gone weird. You know, I, I, it's suddenly heavier or it's longer or it's just all over the place or my PMS has taken on a life of its own. Like what the hell is happening, Nicole? And it really comes down to a few things, like I said. So it's your blood sugar, it's your cortisol, and it's your gut health. What is happening with your gut and your liver? So your gut, if it's not, if think about I want everyone to think about the little microbiome that's in their gut and the fact that there are trillions of organisms in there and the fact that there is a, there's a group of organisms called the estrobilome. And if, those, if your whole microbiome is off due to, again, all those things I've been talking about, that estrobilome can become problematic too. And so the estrobilome is a group of bacteria that actually processes and breaks down estrogens. And if the estrobilome is not where it's supposed to be doing the thing it's supposed to be doing because it's not being fed properly, it can cause one of two things. It can cause your estrogen to be too high or too low. So it can break down too fast or too slow. And then from there, we have the liver. So liver phase one, phase two of liver detoxification also breaks down estrogens and other hormones. And so when our phase one and phase two are not supported with specific nutrients, like the B-complex vitamins, vitamin C, selenium, magnesium, zinc, all of these really crucial micronutrients, and macronutrients too. What ends up happening is those, those hormones are not broken down efficiently. So they're not tied up in a nice little bow and sent to the gut to be removed. And then if you're constipated, then what can happen is all of that can recirculate back into your bloodstream. So we have this whole system. Everyone's like, oh yeah, I'm just going to take the pill to fix my period. And I'm like, wait, hold on. There's all this other stuff happening. Your gut, your liver, you know, your blood sugar, all of it, your thyroid, all of it. So that's really what it comes down to is like, 
can I just get some of the basics down, those basic foundational components where I'm eating to support my blood sugar, I'm doing some kind of stress mediation every single day or you know, as consistently as possible. I'm exercising because that's another thing too. When we sweat, we're actually we're helping to remove toxins from our body, but we're also supporting our estrogen metabolism as well. So there's multiple aspects to this. And it, you know, it, there's no real quick fix. There's no real silver bullet. It's all about us deciding that we're, we don't want to live this way anymore. And we want to choose a different way of um, interacting with our hormones and figuring out, you know, what works for us and what doesn't. Yeah. And it makes so much sense that of course it's the whole body, whole organism, like all of this connects and not just the physiology of our body, but how our, our mental state relates, how we are feeling emotionally, like, like it's all one, we are one being. And I think that idea of let me single out this one part of you and put a fix on that. And then you're good for 20 years. You know, of course it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And I like what you said about this idea that we have that the body is so complex because when you, when you get into the intricacies of the microbiome and the hormones and all of this, all of the inner workings, it sounds really complicated, but when you zoom out a little bit, getting adequate sleep, eating healthy foods, minimizing your sugar intake, you know, moving your body, these things are not, they're not complex, you know, having that moment every day to sit down and close your eyes and and breathe or opting for, for, for healthier foods versus like chugging your Frappuccino out the door or whatever, whatever (laughs) we do when we are stressed. And it's also because of that negative cycle, right? When we're having a stressful time in our lives, it's much harder to opt for the healthy breakfast. It's harder to fall asleep. It's harder. And I think a lot of people right now probably are stuck in that in that negative spiraling thing where one thing is hard and then everything gets hard and then getting out of that is feels impossible. So something sure. I wanted to ask was, is there something that if, you know, if you have a couple of recommendations in terms of supplementing in terms of our diet, if it's, um, yeah, both with vitamins and specific supplements, but also something that we should be eating around certain times in our cycle that could be really helpful. Cause I've heard about that and seed cycling and things like that too. And I would love yeah. to, and maybe for someone listening, you know, about the cycle and the stages of the cycle, how they differ and that we actually need some differing things at differing times. Could you share a little bit about that? Definitely. I, you know, the, the phases of the cycle are so near and dear to me because this is not something I ever imagined I would even know, much less follow. <laughs> but I, I feel that it can be tremendously helpful for someone who just has no idea what's going on with their cycle. So really it's a very first step for everyone even before you decide, okay, I'm going to try and figure out my diet. I'm going to try and figure out my stress stuff, whatever. What I really want everyone to do is to start to track their cycle, start to understand when your period is coming, you know, how long it lasts for, how much you feel like you're bleeding. Do you have a light, medium, heavy flow? What symptoms accompany this? What symptoms in the lead up accompany it? All of that is going to be tremendously helpful. In fact, when someone is being diagnosed with PMDD, they actually have to take that information to their doctor. They have to keep a period diary for three months. I mean, they don't have to, but it's recommended. What is, what is PMDD versus PMS? Oh, yes. PMDD is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And in fact, I, I saw someone ask that question on your post yesterday because, you know, it's something that's really problematic and it's really, I wanted to say, talk about this too. So premenstrual dysphoric disorder, premenstrual syndrome. So basically PMDD is sort of like the bigger, better uh, sibling of PMS. And essentially what's happening is that there are, these symptoms are life disrupting. And in fact, they can feel as though they're completely changing relationships. The person might not be able to go to work. 
They might feel like they just fall into a mini depression every single month. They may have suicidal thoughts. I mean, these are things that are not to be ignored and in many cases can be not addressed. And so I always say, well, keep a diary for three months of what's happening at different on different days of your period or different days of your cycle and then during your period to really know what is actually going on and be able to have proof to show your doctor that this is your experience so that you can get more testing and try and figure out what's happening. And so my point here is that with all of these conditions, no matter what you're struggling with, all of the foundational things I'm talking about are going to help tremendously. And we can spot treat the symptoms and we can take supplements and things like that, which I know are very helpful, but just knowing that if those are not in place, it's going to be really difficult to, to have the long lasting results and the solid results you're looking for. But coming back to this cycle tracking, I really feel like when we know our cycles, we can have these educated and empowered conversations with our doctors, or we can be educated and empowered to know that this doctor isn't for us and we're gonna find someone else who can help us. So ultimately, what I, what I wanna share is that, you know, when you are first getting your period, so that's day one of your cycle, day one of bleeding, same thing. And usually a period is anywhere from three to seven days. I, you know, you, I know you'd mentioned that yours is probably a couple of days sometimes, and that's okay too. It's just one of those things where I say to, say, say to everyone I work with or I talk to that if your period is two days long and you're rocking life and everything is good otherwise, don't stress about it. But if it's two days long and you have vaginal dryness and no libido and you're exhausted and you feel depressed, then to me, that's what we have to be looking at. So we have to look at everything as a collective. And so- Because I remember I went days, to a, a naturopath who asked me about my period and I said, Oh, it's so great. It's like two days. And he was like, Oh, you know, and made a note in his little notebook. And I was like, what do you mean? The two day period is awesome. And that was the first time anyone ever told me that actually having a very, very short period also could mean that something is, is off. Well, it's so funny because nobody's ever said, right? Oh yeah, I really want a longer, heavier period. Not a single person <laughs> in history. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Never. I mean, I have a short period too, so I can understand the feelings of, oh, is this wrong? Is this not okay? But what I want to say to that is that the reason why someone might feel that it's not long enough or it's too short or too light is that you want your estrogen to build up to a threshold in order for ovulation to be kicked off. So if estrogen is not high enough, you may not ovulate. And that would be why one would have a short light period. Their lining is just not built up by that estrogen enough to have a long enough period or a longer period. So that's really the biggest concern. So if one is ovulating, then I consider it to be okay. So when it comes to that, that's one of the aspects of a period that I look at and I want everybody to be paying attention to. I think some of the other things are, you know, how much you're bleeding. So, and what does your blood look like? So how much are you bleeding? Are you changing pads and tampons or period underwear, you know, every like 30 minutes or is it once a day? And so I think that there's a norm is somewhere in between there. So I, I say like every three to four hours is considered normal on the first few days. And then from there, you know, like maybe every five to six six hours, but we have to determine what our normal is. And so, like I was saying, if you're, if you're bleeding too much, that is always pretty evident, meaning that, you know, you're changing constantly. You feel like you flood or, you know, you're, you have to, yeah, you have to constantly change your period protection or you're getting up at night to change it, or you're leaking through onto your sheets or onto your clothes multiple times period, as well as iron deficient anemia, exhaustion, fatigue at that time of your period. Those are all signs of 
too much blood. And then the other, the, like the, the flip side of that, of course, is too little. And you'll start to pay attention to that too once you really determine what your norm is. And then the other thing is like what your blood looks like. So when it's pinkish or very light colored and watery looking, again, that's a sign of estrogen deficiency because your estrogen is not building up your uterine lining. Whereas on the flip side of that, it could be like really dark. I could look black. It could look dark brown or almost like bluish in a way and that, or really dark red. And that is a sign of stagnation. And it could be that there's estrogen dominance, meaning that there's too much estrogen building up your lining, not enough progesterone to sort of smooth out the walls as estrogen does. And what then happens is to me that you've got to look at other symptoms as well. So do you have PMS symptoms? Do you have breast pain? Do you have major mood swings and issues happening in the lead up to your period? Are you spotting for three or more days before you get your period? So all of these are signs of the hormonal conversation gone awry. And so that's what I want everyone to be paying attention to. And I laid this all out in, in the first few chapters of my book so that everyone could have a good idea. But so finding your, because there's not no such thing, of course, as the normal, like here's what yeah. a period has to be, but finding your normal so that when you have a big shift, you can actually identify where is that shift and what is it, what does it look like? Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. So day one of the period is the beginning, of course, yes. of the cycle. What comes after that? So that's the menstruation phase. And so this is the beginning of the follicular phase. So I call it the menstruating part of the follicular phase. And then we move into the non-menstruating part of the follicular phase in the lead up to ovulation. And so this is the time when it, your body is, our bodies are so amazing. Everyone listening, just so you know, your body is amazing what it does. And we don't even know what the hell is going on underneath the hood. <laughs> and it's just doing this thing every single cycle. It's amazing. But the point I'm trying to make here is that what happens is, unbeknownst to us, a little follicle has been chosen or is being chosen to ovulate. And so all of these follicles are being stimulated by FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone, and that's all happening in this follicular phase, hence the name. And so we're going towards ovulation now. And this little follicle that's been chosen, it's a dominant follicle is what they call it. And it's now starting to produce more and more estrogen. And it's going to get estrogen to the point where it peaks and then kicks off this LH surge. So that's luteinizing hormone. And that is going to push the little egg right out of the follicle and into the fallopian tube. And that's ovulation. And when I think about the energy intensity of this and why our bodies might not ovulate due to all the things we've been talking about, it makes so much sense because this requires a great deal of energy and resources from the body. And the body is like, okay, you're stressed. We're definitely not doing this. <laughs> so <laughs> we're not doing this. There's too yeah. much going on. Yeah. Too much going on right now. <laughs> really can't handle ovulation as well. So what then happens is that the egg is in the fallopian tube. It survives for 12 to 24 hours. And then 
it disintegrates unless it's been fertilized by a sperm cell. And then if it were to be fertilized, it would just travel down the fallopian tube and implant into the endometrium. So what's amazing about ovulation is that it produces, that little follicle actually turns into something called a corpus luteum. And that is what produces progesterone in the second half of our cycle. So when we talk about low progesterone, I talk about the spot treating of, of hormones, we can't really do that because we have to know why the progesterone is low in the first place. It could be a problem with the corpus luteum. It could be a problem of inflammation. It could be gut-related issues. It could be the stressors. It could be nutrient deficiencies. There's so much. And so the point is, is that this little follicle has now turned into a mini endocrine gland that will supply progesterone for the rest of your cycle. And if you were to become pregnant, would supply progesterone to support the pregnancy up until the placenta takes over. This tiny little two, two by two to five centimeter gland. For anyone listening like who can't see me right now, my jaw is like on the floor. <laughs> I guess how I, I, I never knew this. Like I never, yeah, this is amazing. Honestly, I know it's a tiny little gland. And then when there's no pregnancy, it's like, okay, bye. And it just (laughs) up and turns into scar tissue. And then the whole process repeats itself again. So that is what is happening in the first two weeks of your cycle. It turns into scar tissue, meaning what? Like how does, how does it end? Meaning like it just sort of disintegrates. So it becomes something called a corpus albicans. And so it's just like tissue and, or like a little scar tissue. And then the cycle repeats itself in the ovary or the other ovary again. So it's really just like this remarkable process of building and breaking down and building and breaking down over decades of our lives. So does it then make sense that when we are in that phase, we should be resting? Are there certain times of the cycle where it makes more sense to rest and where it makes more sense to be really active? Yes, I should. Yeah, I should definitely clarify this. So this is actually the time when estrogen has risen really high. Testosterone is at its peak. So you're going to feel really outgoing, really energetic, actually, in most cases, not everyone, which I will explain. But at most, for the most part, our energy is really high and we do feel very outward facing and we want to be out in the world and we want to be socializing with people. So that's the time in the follicular phase as we're leading up to ovulation that you really are out there. You know, they, they refer to it as the spring and the summer. And so when you think of the inner spring and then the inner summer, you're just like, okay, I'm ready. You're <laughs> and, ready. You know, estrogen. <laughs> Fertilize me. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh. Evolution is crazy. When I think about it, estrogen makes your skin and your hair amazing. It Testosterone just like makes you way more extroverted. You're willing to take more risks. I'm like, yeah, sounds Mother about right. Nature is such a, <laughs> such a trip. But what about for people who, cause this is something that I've, I've seen in friends after we turned 30, like right around. So I'm, I'm 32 now. I started having symptoms where I felt like I was getting a flu. Like I would get really shaky. I would be, yeah, almost like body aches, getting headaches, feeling like I was about to get a flu and then realized that it was happening every month around the same time. And then my husband told me, oh, but you're ovulating. And then I started asking friends and they were like, oh, you don't get ovulation fevers. And I was like, what is that a thing? (laughs) I never heard of that in my entire life. What does that mean? And is that a common? You started noticing that recently or like ovulation time at ovulation time that I feel shaky. I feel tired. And, and then some people wrote that as well. I feel more strange during ovulation than I do. Periods are fine. For me, ovulation is the heavier time. Is that something that you can then easily track and kind of understand? It is. It's totally a thing. I actually have a blog post on this called P- feeling PMSE at ovulation. It's like this weird phenomenon that's happening. And so there's multiple things involved here. I think one of the first things is for everyone to 
think about, you know, what symptoms they're actually experiencing the, during this time and make a note of them. Because uh, if you feel these feelings like you're describing, you also feel moody or you feel tired as well. There's, a, there's an issue called histamine intolerance. And essentially what that means is your body makes histamines and, you know, it's, it's one of these processes that's, you know, very normal. But what happens here is that with histamine intolerance, it's like you're either making too much of it or your body's not breaking it down enough. And so the histamines are basically the, the opposite of antihistamine. So you take an antihistamine to address a histamine issue, like a histamine reaction, but a histamine reaction is very similar to what you're describing. And so when we are in this estrogen peak, estrogen actually raises histamine. So when we've got this much estrogen coursing through our bodies at this time, we may run into problems with histamine. Not all of us, but some of us do. And so a lot of times this comes back to our gut health. What's going on with our gut? Is there a gut dysbiosis situation happening? because that's really the crux of the histamine problem. And so if we're not breaking down histamine properly too, there could be a genetic component as well because there is a gene that makes an enzyme that breaks down histamine. So again, like I was saying in our 30s and 40s, when we're just not quite as resilient as we were when we were younger, this stuff starts to show up. So it makes me just, I always tell this to clients, like you have to start to think about, okay, let me focus on getting some gut testing to figure out if there's a problem going on here, tracking my bowel movements and things like that to make sure that there's not something weird happening, you know, really supporting phase one and phase two of liver detoxification. So there's no backlog, but yeah, like this is a totally a thing that's happening. I see it a lot more now around that peak estrogen time. And then it might show up again, right in the middle of the luteal phase. So everyone should pay attention to that too, because there's another bump of estrogen towards the end, right before your period. Funny. So really returning to to mindfulness, right? And consciousness. And when is this showing up? And is it consistent? And is it the same every time? And 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 getting really clear about this. Because I am I'm pretty bad at that in terms of my my cycle. Like that's why like my husband tracks this for me instead of me. And it's it's part of something I really would love to change and feel more in honor of my cycle versus it. And I think a lot of people are are feeling that same thing instead of it being a nuisance and I have all these ailments and oh here we go again. Do you have any recommendations in terms of making this more of a celebrated part of our lives and actually honoring the cycle and the genius and the intelligence of the body? Oh yeah, for sure. I think one of the first things is like we were talking about, about this cycle tracking thing and really recognizing that this is this is really how we were meant to live. And because we live in a society where we were talking about earlier that really places so much value on the go, 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 and let's get more and let's push harder rather than that feminine flow, which is basically, let's just let's work hard, but also play hard. Let's, you know, take breaks in between the hard work. Let's, you know, collaborate. Let's not be so singularly focused. Let's be more focused on bringing people together. And so when I think about your cycle, as it relates to that, I think about the the ebb and flow of these sex hormones and that, you know, in the first half of your cycle, that very first period, you know, the first five to seven days, you really want to be thinking about how you can slow down and really honor your body in this time because, and it's not, I know that this isn't possible for everyone. And this might just be a, a small break in between all the things that you have going on, but just like really recognizing that your body is seriously asking you for rest right now. And that if you keep ignoring the signals, 
all you're essentially doing is exacerbating problems later on down the line. And so when you can take some time during that phase of your cycle, it's going to help you really get the most out of those more energetic phases of the cycle as well. And so then when we come back to into the luteal phase and progesterone is high, really honoring that time too and thinking about, you were talking about your husband and tracking your cycle and all of these symptoms that are showing up for you right now. And I, I think about progesterone and that hormone and the fact that it's kind of like truth serum <laughs> because at that time in your cycle, it's like, it's like the veil is lifted. The idea here is that your, your ability to, to discern what is real and what's BS is so heightened in this time and you're so much more sensitive. And so when we're not actually, you know, when we're still in that ovulatory phase where we're just out and about and we're doing all the things, we're even more sensitive. Our nervous systems are sensitive in this time frame, And we're at the point where we're like, I can't take another thing, but I have to be doing all these things. And so that's where your body is like, well, I'm just going to rebel against you now. <laughs> so it doesn't rebel for no reason. And so you end up with all these raging PMS symptoms because PMS and PMDD are about our nervous systems. Ultimately, the vagus nerve, it's a, it's a nerve that connects our brain and nervous system to our digestive tract and runs throughout the body. And there, there's such thing as vagal nerve toning. And what you can do multiple things. You can take hot and cold showers, meditation, you know, breathing exercises. All of these things can help actually calm the vagus nerve. And that's the conversation between your brain and your digestive function and the rest of your body. And so when our nervous systems are so overstimulated in that second half of our cycle when the veil is lifted. We don't, we just say exactly how we feel. We have no tolerance for the nonsense and, and we're just constantly fighting with the people in our lives. But if we're, we're cognizant of the fact that we're now in that stage of our cycle and we know that we need to take it down a notch, we need to maybe have a day alone. Maybe you, you know, you go off and do something on your own one day, or, you know, you're focusing every morning on writing in your journal, like how you want your day to look, or you're focusing on, you know, what it is that's really bothering you as soon as you wake up. Like, you've got that out of your head. So you're now able to recognize that this is stuff that, you know, needs to be dealt with, but it doesn't really need to be dealt with now. Like I always say, pay attention to what it is that's coming up because this is stuff that is likely long-term and it's not something that can be resolved easily because oftentimes I hear things like, I want to divorce during this time, or, you know, I need to change my job or all the things that need to change in your life usually come up and they exacerbate the symptoms that you're experiencing. So that's exactly, that's exactly it. Like the week before my period, I'm telling my husband, everything is terrible. We need to move. I need to go to another country. I hate my house. <laughs> There's drama everywhere, everywhere. But actually the next week, all those things are the same, but I don't feel the same about those things. Yes. So estrogen, estrogen has a buffering <laughs> effect. Estrogen starts to rise and it's like, Rose-tinted glasses. Everything is okay now. <laughs> Everything <laughs> so is okay for us now. To see that, that we're not crazy and that this is mm. actually, you know, our hormones basically govern everything. Hmm. One, one final question I want to ask because yeah. I know this is a big one and I know for me, at least personally, it was a really beautiful alternative to all the hormone-related contraceptives that I was using or hormone-regulating contraceptives I was using before and using a cycle tracking as a contraceptive. Yeah. 
yes. how, which I know is, is, is controversial because, because I think for a lot of people, they are really scared. Is that going to really work? Suddenly going off the pill and choosing to, to track my cycle instead. For me, it was really helpful. I'm in a stage now with my husband where we don't really care if we have another kid. So that's why we just wing it, which works really well as well for us in our lives. But when we were at that stage of, we really don't want to have another baby, And a few years prior to having a baby, it worked beautifully without any hormone, without a pill, without anything. So could you touch a little bit on that? How safe is a natural contraceptive? Yeah, that's well, it's very safe in terms of, you know, when it comes to your health, it's very safe in that there are really no side effects because you're essentially, when we're talking about natural con contraceptive, I probably should say that when we're talking about that, I'm, I'm referring to a fertility awareness-based method of, of contraception. And so essentially there are many different ways to do that, but the one that I use, and I maybe the one you've been using too, is the symptothermal method where you're using a thermometer and you're taking your basal body temperature, and then you're, you're paying attention to your cervical fluid patterns. Is that the one? Yes. You, yeah. yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. I think thermometer. Every, ther yeah. Thermometer every morning. And then the app tells you the rest. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Super yeah, easy. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I know. And some people use apps too, whereas some people use actual charts and mm -hmm. then they chart their temperatures and their cervical fluid. And so they'll know their fertile window from that. And, you know, for the symptothermal method, if it's used correctly, In one year, 0.4 or fewer than one couples will have a pregnancy. So this is essentially a 99.6% effectiveness rate with perfect use, of course. Out of 100. Yeah. Out of out 100, 100 couples, 0.4 yeah. couples will have. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, it's like a more effective pill. than a how, how effective is a, a condom? Is it also 90? The condom really is, high? that's a good question. Hold on. I can, I can look that up. I have it. I think I have it right here. Uh, somewhere. I remember that it's episode like 98, of, yes, it's 98%. <laughs> I remember that episode of friends. 82. Have you seen that? Where like, where Joey realizes that condoms are only 90 something percent <laughs> effective and he like goes insane. Yeah. But condoms are not hundred percent effective. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people know that by now. So this is. is actually as effective as using a condom or the pill. Yes. Or the pill. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so and nothing really is. And I, I think that really ultimately your fertility awareness based method or your natural birth control is only as effective as the backup that you're using, whether it's a condom during your fertile window or the withdrawal method or something like that. So it really just depends on what it is that you're, you're, you're using during the fertile window. But ultimately, what I want everyone to know is that this can be used really effectively. I mean, I've used it for years and I've had so many clients and people I know use it as well. And I think that we have to remember that we have to develop trust in our bodies. We've been taught for so long to fear our bodies and how they function. And that, that is just, that has got to go. I feel like it is such an outdated way of, of teaching sex education. And we really have to focus more on this understanding of our bodies and how they work. And the fact that we are only fertile for that very short window that your egg is alive. And uh, the reason that the window is longer is because sperm can survive for up to five days in that cervical fluid, that fertile quality cervical fluid that is so present during the fertile window when ovulation is about to occur. So that's really what it comes down to. We are taking a pill every single day of our lives for decades in some cases, and we are only fertile for this tiny window, whereas men are fertile every single day of their lives. So... <laughs> 
kind of backwards. Kind and of I really backwards. Want everyone to, to, yeah, to just really consider that for a second. That's so, 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 so true. And then the burden on, you know, every unwanted pregnancy is always on the, the shoulders of the woman where actually yes. uh, a man can get a woman pregnant any day of the year any you yes. know, and, and, and for Multiple. so much longer in terms of their lifespan also. Um, right? But still, this is all on us. It's also a heavy emotional weight, you know, I think for, for, for us overall having having a lot of oppression in our past, still experiencing that. I was talking yesterday on social media about the, the tampon tax and just how, how much divisiveness and how much inequality we still experience in every country of the world, you know, still today. For sure. For sure. I mean, even when, when you think about something like tubal ligation, which is, you know, the permanent blocking of the fallopian tubes, women go undergo that all the time. Whereas vasectomy is an in and out procedure. It's totally easy to get, have done. And yet far more women than men do the tubal ligation versus vasectomy. So it's, you know, there are multiple issues at play here for sure. So maybe it's a really good thing. I mean, maybe me and my husband were balancing out, evening out the score that he's in charge of the cycle and not me. That's something I really liked about fertility awareness and tracking as a contraceptive is you can put the responsibility on on the man, if you want, yeah, you know, you can. which is, uh, I know it's, which... it's totally a shared conversation. And I think that you can't really do this method without having conversations about what it means and, and what the risk factors are and, and how, you know, and when you're fertile and all of these things. So it creates this dialogue in a relationship. If you're in a relationship that I think is so meaningful and amazing. Whereas if you're on the pill, that's just, it's not up for discussion, really. There's nothing to really talk about. Yeah. Yeah. So true. I feel like we could go another hour and a half easily. So I'm thinking maybe we have to do a follow-up episode because I know there's a lot of questions that, that we didn't cover yet, but I like to end every uh, podcast the same way. So if there is something, everyone listening right now, something we can do to be of service to you or to your work or in this area, what would that be? Oh, thank you. Wow. What a wonderful question. I think that one of the things that would be amazing for me is if anyone is really struggling to get my book, it's called Fix Your Period. I wrote this book for everyone who's ever come to me and felt that they didn't know what was going on with their bodies. And I really wanted to give a comprehensive education around menstrual cycles in this book and how to actually address them in a full six-week protocol. So if you're interested, it's called Fix Your Period. You can go to fixyourperiod.com for booksellers all over the world. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining me on the show. This was so educational for me. <laughs> it really, really, really was. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. And thank you to my amazing guest, Nicole Jardim. You can find more from Nicole on her Instagram at Nicole M. Jardim or in her book, Fix Your Period. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of the Yoga Girl podcast, Conversations from the Heart. You can find all of these episodes on yogagirl.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your shows. Don't forget to leave a review while you are there. Thanks to everyone at Cadence 13 for their production work. I'll see you next week.